This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. It's a pleasure to be here this morning with you all. The singing has been wonderful, and uh, it's just always a good time to be here together to worship our God on, on Sunday mornings and uh, be together as a family. It's just a, a real blessing to, to me, and, and I know it is to you as well. Uh, you know, as we develop as a congregation, as we grow as a congregation, uh, it's important for us to talk about the, the future, and it's important for us to set a foundation for what we can expect going forward. And uh, I, I received some wisdom from an elder uh, from another congregation, and he said it's never too early to start talking about leadership. It's never too early to start talking about elders and deacons. And though we are a young congregation, uh, that's the mindset that I have this morning. It's not too early to be talking about these things. We need to know about the topic of leadership for our congregation because these are two very important scriptural offices that the Bible commands that we should have at, at our congregation. And so uh, we may not be there right now at a point where we can appoint um, men to be elders and deacons, but hopefully we will be at some point. Uh, so, in, so with that in mind, um, I, I want to start a, a series on this topic. And so for the next several lessons that I give, we're going to talk about these aspects of leadership. And uh, we'll get to the, to the qualifications at, at, uh, later on in the series. Um, but it's important for us to begin to build this foundation, as I mentioned. Uh, there are two offices that God appointed, the offices of elder and deacon for the care of his church. And it does require a certain kind of man. It does require a certain kind of wife that that man should have. Um, and so, so we're going to study in, into those, those things. Now, it's easy if, if you're in the audience, if, if you think, well, I'm not, um, I'm not going to be an elder, I'm not going to be a deacon, to just kind of check out. And you think, well, this series isn't for me. That's not true. This series is for you. If you're a member of this congregation, this series is for you. It does not matter if you are in the position of being an elder or a deacon or not. It does not matter if you are, if you're in the position of, of a wife being married to a man who could be an elder or a deacon. It doesn't matter if you're single. It doesn't matter if you're young or old. This series is for you because you have an active stake in this congregation and you should uh, have a, a voice and as far as who is appointed and uh, making sure that in the selection process, someday when we get there, that you will be able to voice those really understanding well what kind of men we're looking for um, and what kind of families we're looking for in these types of roles. Um, so, because it, it is going to impact you. So please uh, pay careful attention as we go through this, this study series um, and uh, feel free to ask any questions as we, as we uh, you know, after the services, as we go along through the series. If you get questions, there's things you're curious about, please uh, reach out and, and we can talk about those. Um, so before we even can get into the qualifications of elders and deacons, there's, there's very specific things that we need to understand. Um, and I want to spend time looking at what kind of life leads to being this kind of person in the first place. What, what leads to being this kind of man, being a qualified man for the position of elder or deacon? And so uh, another note to give you kind of an idea of the progression that we're going to take in the series, we're going to gradually build up into this concept of elder and deacon and so we're going to go along, starting with this, this uh, study and the next, looking at an individual's life. Uh, so there's, there's things that we need to look at on the individual level before we can even get to the point of, of talking about the qualifications. And then we'll look at the family. 
and then we'll take a look at the responsibilities of fathers as, as part of those studies, and then the responsibility of, of these men in the church. And then, so it's going to lead into that progression. Individual, your family, your, you as a father, and your responsibility as a, an elder or a deacon in the church. What are the qualifications? So hopefully, by the end of the series, we'll have a better understanding of these qualities, the need for these roles, and the purpose of church leadership. And even though we are talking specifically about these roles of elder and deacon, as far as leadership goes, uh, these studies are useful for anyone because the standards for an elder, the standards for a deacon and their families, those are standards that we should all be striving for. It doesn't matter who you, who you are. If, if you want to know, uh, as a man, what goal should I strive for to be? You can read those qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and read, this is the kind of man I should try to be in general. That's the, if you lead that kind of life, you will be a good, godly man. And, and what kind of wife should I be? Well, look at those qualifications. Or what kind of woman should I be? Look at the things that are required of a, of a wife, of an elder, a deacon, and embody those characteristics, and you will, you will be striving to be a great uh, Christian woman. And so anyone that wants to grow as a Christian should look at these qualifications and strive for them. Now, on the topic of a leader or, or a Christian in general, there are two fundamental questions that you must answer if, if we're even going to start talking about and consider yourself as a, a potential leader, uh, whether you're in an official capacity as a leader or not, you can be a leader in the congregation in the sense of your example and what you model for the people around you. That's leadership. Um, but in order to think about that, there are two questions you have to have solidly answered in your life. And we're going to examine those two uh, today. And there's probably some more, but these are the two fundamental ones, I think. Uh, the first question is, do you believe in Christ? That seems kind of obvious and, and, uh, and fundamental or and basic, but that's the best question we can start with. Uh, there might be a lot of good people in a congregation and, and maybe good people in this congregation, but maybe you don't have a solid understanding of Jesus. Maybe you don't have an understanding of what you believe in and even if you believe in Christ, truly. Um, you know, you might be going through the motions rather than being moved by a true and firm faith in Christ. And so it's very important for you to know that and answer that question and, and be able to, to articulate why you believe this using the scriptures. Do you believe in Jesus? Um, well, who is Jesus? Let's, let's take a moment and examine some of the details about this question. Who is Jesus in the first place? The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Bible tells us here, John, the, the apostle, writes that, that the Word was made into flesh, and the world knew Him as the only begotten of the Father, and He dwelt among us. And this is speaking, of course, of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the Word, and, and He became embodied in a fleshly body, and he lived as a man among, among us in this world. Why does that matter so much for us to know that Jesus is the Word and he became flesh? Uh, because in, in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same, the Word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, the Word, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men. So everything we see in this world, 
all of the physical things that were created were created by the Word, and the Word was with God in the beginning, and it says the Word was God. And so they are one, uh, although there is a, a distinction here between God and the Word. He says the Word was God, the Word was with God, because they are one in the same. And he was there from the creation. He created this world, he created humanity, created you and I. That's the Word. Had all the creative power, he created you and me to live in this world, to live in holiness. And if you go back and remember, it says that this Word became flesh. And so Jesus is God in the flesh. This is exactly what uh, the Bible teaches us. There was prophecies about, um, about this coming. We'll read here in just a moment. But it's, it's crucial for us to understand, um, it's crucial for us to understand that Jesus Christ came into this world, into flesh, and dwelt among us in, as a man. It is, it is a fundamental starting point for the doctrine of our faith and for our life, and it is non-negotiable. This is a non-negotiable when it comes to talking about Jesus. Did he come in the flesh? Yes. And we have to start with that. And if you are going to be a man that is a leader in the congregation or a woman that's a leader in the congregation in the sense that you're married to an elder or a deacon and you have to uh, exemplify the standard of, of righteousness for the rest of the congregation, or if you want to be a godly person in general and you want to be an example to others, you have to know this solidly, that Jesus came in the flesh. And there can be no doubt in our mind about this. Um, you, you can't lead God's people and be unsure if Christ came in the flesh or not. It is fundamental and it is critical. Uh, the, I mean, these were things that were prophesied since the days of old, and Jesus fulfilled that. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, 21, it says, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of, of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us with us as humans. God is among us and dwells among us, and that's what the name of Christ uh, means here as they, as they call him, Emmanuel. And uh, it, is, it is prophesied of old that God would come in the flesh and dwell among us, being born of a virgin. So he went through all of the experiences, the, the same experience that we do, being born and living in this world and dealing with all of the headaches, all of the heartaches that we deal with, and he knows every single thing that we go through. Uh, because he lived as a man. Um, but again, it's very solid. It, we must solidly understand this and believe this in our lives as Christians because there are people who don't believe this. And the apostles contended with this type of, of doctrine. Back in the first century, the apostles contended with a group called the Gnostics. And there were other people, uh, other types of doctrines as well that were teaching things that were counter to the truth of the Scriptures. And this Gnostic group, uh, they believed, they had, uh, one of their core beliefs is that all of the things in the physical world are evil. And so everything that's physical is evil, inherently. And that's an issue, right? Because Jesus, the Word, is the one who created all things. Um, and he, didn't, he doesn't create things that are, that are evil. Um, yes, there's potential because we have freedom and we can turn to evil, but things that are created themselves, physical things, are not evil. Uh, just because they're physical, but this was a, an idea that the Gnostics had. So if you think about it carefully, if they believe the physical world is evil, then they would conclude that the Word would never become flesh because that would be evil. 
So Jesus would become evil if he came into this world and, and dwelt among us as a man. That's destructive. That is denying the Lord that, that bought us. That is, that is a false uh, heretical doctrine, and that's what they were dealing with. And so John writes in 2 John chapter 1, verse 7, he says, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. See, these, because of these doctrines, they are confessing to people and telling people that Jesus Christ did not come into this world. He didn't come in the, in the, bodily, in, in the bodily flesh. And if He didn't come in the bodily flesh, then He didn't die. He wasn't put to death. And if He wasn't put to death, He wasn't buried. And if He wasn't buried, then He wasn't resurrected bodily. He didn't ascend bodily. And He's not going to return bodily. Do you see the implications of this? If you don't believe that Jesus came in the flesh... It, it, it completely topples all of the things that we believe and what our faith is built upon. And that's what these people were teaching and were deceiving Christians. They were coming in, sneaking into the church, privately bringing in these damnable heresies, as Peter says. And he says they are deceiving many people. And with their fair words and their great speeches, they are causing the faithful to fall away into error. And these men come in and these women that, that believe these doctrines, they come in and confess that Jesus did not come in the flesh. And he says, if anybody does this, they, are, they should be counted as a deceiver and, and an antichrist. You are against Christ if you are teaching these doctrines. Don't, don't look at that term antichrist and think end times, prophecies, and all this other false doctrines that the people are, are out there teaching and these things. The, the term antichrist is not referring to a specific person. It's si simply saying you are against Christ. And so anyone that teaches a doctrine that is against Christ is antichrist. Um, Verse 8, he says, Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, uh, but that we receive a full reward. Don't lose all the work that you've put into understanding and learning and all the work that the apostles have done, all that they bled and died for, all that Jesus bled and died for. Don't lose those things. They, they wrought and worked for those things. He says, But instead, let's receive a, a full reward, holding on to this faith that Christ came in the flesh. Whosoever transgresses, and abides not in the doctrine of Christ, that, that the doctrine that Christ came in the flesh. If you don't abide in that doctrine, you don't have God. And he that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. And so you see why it's so critical for us to know and understand that Jesus came in the flesh. If we don't believe this, then we don't have God. We, it, it is a non-negotiable part of our faith and, and a, and a non-negotiable doctrine. We must abide in the doctrine that Jesus came in the flesh. He came into this world. Because again, if he came in the flesh, that means he did die and he shed his own blood, physical blood that was shed for our forgiveness, and he was buried and he was raised up from that death and conquered the grave and he, he was resurrected to eternal life and ascended to heaven and now waits there to return physically someday to raise us up physically. Because if it didn't happen for Jesus, it won't happen for us. But the truth is that it, it did. So it's very critical for us to know and believe this, that Jesus came in the flesh. Now, with that, we also have to understand as we, you know, I kind of gave a brief summary there, but we need to know why he came into this world. Um, you know, in the beginning, mankind was created in God's likeness. They were created, uh, we were created as humans to be like God in his holiness, and we were supposed to live purely in his light. And we did until the day that they disobeyed God and they brought sin and death into the world. And so, with, with nothing that mankind could do on their own to ab uh, absolve themselves of that and to rectify the situation, God intervened. He stepped in and gave humanity a solution. 
And the solution that he gave was Jesus Christ coming into this world. And that's another reason he came in the flesh. If you read uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, it says that he that commits sin is of the devil because the devil sins from the beginning. So the, the devil is, is the source of sin. He's the one that disobeyed God and, and fell away from God, and he brought that into us, to humanity. And for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. We read the prophecy of Emmanuel being born into the world, uh, a virgin birth, and, and uh, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted as God with us. And the angel also quoted the prophecies and told Mary that this one that was born, um, Emmanuel, would also save his people from their sins. So Jesus was manifested. He came into this world so that he might destroy the works of the devil. And the works of the devil are sin. All the types of sins that are committed. Jesus came for that very purpose, to destroy those works and to free us from the penalty of sin, to free us from sin itself. Um, and, and of course, sin causes death, and so Jesus is coming to free us from that consequence as well. Uh, and he frees us from that in his sacrifice. If you look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, the Bible says in Hebrews 9, 22, that almost all things by the law are purged with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. And so if Jesus didn't come in the flesh, then he did not shed physical blood, and therefore there's no remission of sins that happened because under the law, even under the law, that was a requirement. That they, that's why they shed all those animals' blood, is to bring about forgiveness of sins because this is what God commanded them to do at that time. And Jesus came to be the final sacrifice once for everyone. And, and from that point forward, there's no need for animal sacrifices any, any longer because... Animal sacrifices and the blood of animals does not compare to the blood of Christ. The, the blood of Christ is eternally superior to the blood of, of animals, the bloods of bulls and of goats. And that is something that the Bible shows us and teaches us because he came into this world to make this physical sacrifice on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 says, But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. It's not something physical. He's the he's a high priest of a the greater tabernacle in heaven. He didn't enter in, it says, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. So when Jesus, as the high priest, was making a sacrifice, he wasn't sacrificing bulls and goats and calves. He wasn't doing that. He was he used his own blood and he entered into that holy place. And with that offering, he obtained eternal redemption for us. Eternal redemption was purchased with the blood of Christ. And here's the questions so that we can compare between the old law and the new. He says, if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean, because that's the thing they would do, these priests, when they would, they would uh, offer up this blood and they would, get the, the, they would you know, kill the animals, gather the blood, and they would offer it and pour it on the altar. And then as part of a purifying uh, ceremony for themselves, they would take these ashes and they would put it on themselves as well. And what they were doing was making themselves holy enough to approach God and serve in this capacity as priests. And so he says, if the blood of bulls and goats was good enough and the, and the ashes of an heifer sprinkled the unclean and that made them good enough, it sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, 
that made them be able to approach God in this service in this way. And they had to do this every single time they were going to approach God. He says, if that was the case back then, how much more and how much better is the sacrifice that Jesus made? How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That blood and of the bulls and goats and, the, and these ashes, that was good enough to purify their flesh and they could approach God. But Christ's blood is good enough to purify your conscience. And that makes you be able to stay in the relationship with God and approach Him and He purifies you so that you can serve, so you can be clean from dead works, the dead works of sin that lead to nothing, that lead you nowhere, that leave you empty, that leave you destroyed. He frees you from those sins, the, the works of Satan, and instead he, he offers you this opportunity and this blessing to serve the living God. So turning you from death to life. And then the things that you do, the choices that you make, the way that you live, he makes you alive. And he cleans your conscience. And that's only something that his blood could do. And this is why he came and dwelt among us, so that he could die and offer himself as the most holy and perfect sacrifice. And in that sacrifice, he offers the perfect solution for sin. He's able to cleanse our conscience completely so that we can now serve the living God. And so if he didn't come in the flesh, then none of this other stuff is true. It's important for us to know that Jesus has come into this world and that he, he is true, he is real, and the, the sacrifice he made is true and it is real. Not only did he give the sacrifice, he was raised up again. Uh, he rose again to free humanity from the curse of, of sin, and, and that is death. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, 20-21, it says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and became the first fruits of them that slept. Now, if, if you're not familiar with that phrase, for uh, the first fruits of them that slept, in uh, Colossians 1, it says it this way, that he is the firstborn from the dead. Now you're thinking, and... and and I think, rightfully, you, you would think, but other people were raised up from the dead. I mean, there's plenty of accounts in the Old Testament that we can read of where people were raised from the dead, and plenty of accounts that Jesus came and he raised people up from the dead. Um, you know, there was uh, several accounts. I mean, Lazarus was one that comes to mind, and uh, the daughter of Jairus, uh, he, you know, she was raised up from the dead. Why aren't they the first that were raised from the dead? Why aren't they the firstborn from the dead? Well, the primary difference is that all those people that we read about in the Old Testament and the New that were raised from the dead, they died again. They died all over again. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead because he was raised in eternal life and he will never die again. And so he's the very first one to be raised to eternal life. He is the first fruits. The, 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 the first fruits of those that, that had died, and they call it sleep because you're waking up from that. That's not permanent. Um, he says, so Jesus is the first fruits of, of that. And he made it possible for other people to follow in that pattern and be raised up to eternal life, never to die again. And, and this is why, because since by man, by humanity, death was, came into this world, then by death, the life of a man would also come the resurrection from the dead. You see how he reverses the curse of the garden? You see how he, he turns that back, um, he turns that back and he rectifies the problem. 
he creates a solution here through his death and being raised up, breaking that power of Satan. And so this curse that humanity brought of death is done. It's removed in Christ. And so he was raised so that we could be raised as well. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 gives us more detail. He says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. So he didn't just create humanity and say, all right, you know, deal with that. I, I don't know what it's like. No, he also took part of the same. He became flesh. He became blood. He became physical and lived like us. And, and he took part of the same, meaning death. He, he experienced the sting of death just like we're all going to. And, and he, all humans before had, had experienced because of sin and because of death. And the purpose was so that through death he would destroy him that had power of death, that is, the devil. And in doing so, in being raised from the dead, he has delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He has freed humanity from the curse of death. He has freed us from the fear of death. And we no longer have to live in subjection to that bondage of, of death and of sin. We don't have to live scared of dying. Because if we are in Christ... We know that He defeated death, and if we're in Him, we're going to as well, because that's the blessing that He gives us. And He was raised again to, to bring us that hope, and to reverse the curse of the garden, and to give us eternal life. And the blessing of Jesus being manifested into the world and doing these things is that not only He didn't just stop there, He gave us access to this gift. He gave us access to this blessing and he offers all humanity salvation for all who would be willing to accept it and to, to uh, submit themselves in obedience to him as the Savior, he gives that gift to everyone who, who is willing. Um, it's not just, hey, I, I came and I conquered death and now everyone is okay and it doesn't matter what you do. He offers salvation to us and there are specific things that we have to do. John 8, 34, Jesus answered and said, Verily, verily, I say to you, whosoever commits sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abides not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. And if you're confused about uh, verse 35, uh, very simply put, he's referencing the story of Isaac and of Ishmael. Uh, because Isaac, uh, Ishmael was born from Hagar. This is Abraham. Uh, Abraham had a wife named Sarah. And she was not able to have children, and that was his wife, and that was the promise that God made, and who he was going to bring the promise of a son, and then this like seed, and this lineage that was going to be as innumerable as the stars. But then they decided to try to bring that about on their own, and so Sarah gives Abraham Hagar, her servant, the Egyptian servant, and he has a child with her, and that child was Ish Ishmael. He was the son of a servant, a slave. And then Isaac is born, the son of a free woman. And so, if you recall the story, eventually the servant son gets kicked out of the house. God tells him to, to you know, get rid of Hagar and this boy. They are not the ones that are going to receive the promise. Of course, God takes care of them and blesses them, and they're fine. But with Abraham, the son, that he, the son of freedom, Isaac, the son born of the free woman, that's who the promise was going to come from. And so he abides in the house and stays in the house forever. The son, Isaac, or Ishmael, the servant, he gets cast out. And so Jesus is using that as an analogy and a picture, and what that was doing was painting this prophecy. 
He says, the servant does not abide in the house forever. You're going to get removed, and you're going to be exiled, and you're going to be cast out. But if you're the son, the son does abide in the house forever. And so if the son makes you free, then you will be free indeed. And so he's using this story and showing us the, 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 the teaching here and using that as an analogy for sin. If we are the bond servant of sin, we are going to be cast out of the house of God. But if we are part of, of Christ and, and are a son of Christ and are a daughter of Christ, if we are in Christ, then we will be in the house forever. So there's a reference to eternal life there. And we will be free. And that's what Christ comes and offers us. Freedom from sin. If we commit sin, we are the slave of sin. We need to have that solidly in our mind and really understand that. If we are living in sin, we are the slave of sin. Jesus came to free us from that, and he offers us freedom. And so his death and resurrection is the beautiful message of the gospel. And that's what God uses to save you and me. It is the rescue plan that God initiated, that God executed, and he ordained that men should be a part of Christ's death and resurrection in a very specific way, and that is by being baptized into Christ. Colossians 2, 12-13, he says, We are buried with him in baptism, wherein also you're risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So God has ordained this very specific model of how we should be joined together with Christ and be part of the story of Christ coming into the world dying, being raised, and becoming free from sin, becoming free from death. And if we want that, we need to be part of that. But this is the starting point for us as Christians. We need to know these things solidly. We need to know and understand these things firmly. And the only way we can do that is by continually examining the scriptures and gaining this knowledge. And so we need to know Jesus came in the flesh. We need to know that he came and offered a sacrifice. That he, that he was buried and raised again, that he offers salvation to us. And the fact that he was raised from the, from, from the dead, this is our life. That's the only reason we have life in Christ now is because he was raised from the dead. And so if we are Christians and we believe this, then we're risen with him in baptism. And if that's so, Paul says this in Colossians 3. He just said this in Colossians 2, how to be buried and raised with Christ. And in Colossians 3... He continues this thought of being raised with Christ, and he says, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. He's saying very clearly, if you're baptized and you've been raised up to life with Christ, act like it. Live like it. Why would we become free from sin and then continue to act like we're bondage and in bondage to sin? If, we're made, if we've been made free from sin, live free from sin. Seek those things that are above, where Christ is sitting on the right hand of God. Set your affection on the things above, not on things of the earth. For, for you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Think about that. You are dead. If you have been baptized into Christ's death, you have become dead. And you've been reanimated. You've been resurrected. God's Spirit has come back into your life. And now your life is hid with Christ in God. Your life has been swallowed up in this victory of Christ. And we need to live seeking those things which are above because when Christ, who is our life, He's the source of our life, the very source 
uh, as, as we read in John chapter 1, that in Him was life and life was the light of men. If we're in Him, we have access to that life and that's how we should be living. He says, when Christ, who is our life, will appear, then shall you also appear with Him in glory. When Christ comes back to judge the faithful, we'll be counted faithful with Him if we set our affection on the things that are heavenly, not things of the earth. And the difference is the things in, in heaven are holy and pure and right and just, and the things of the earth are sinful. That doesn't mean we don't live in this world and don't have to take care of ourselves and our families and do those things. But it's setting your affections on, on the world is where we're going to go wrong. Because if your affection is on the world and you're wrapped up in getting praise from the world, wanting to be the most, you know, uh, the most handsome, the most beautiful, the most wealthy, the most popular, the most smart, the most whatever, that's where your affection is, then, then you're going to fail. And you won't be appearing with Christ in glory because you're, you're stating with your actions and your affection and with your life that Christ is not your life source. But if Christ is our life source, then that's going to sh completely shift our mindset. Uh, one more verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 10, it says, And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Our body is, is dead because of the destruction of sin, but God is going to redeem the body and transform it. That's why the resurrection is going to happen, and we're going to receive new bodies so that this, this can be uh, dealt with properly, and, and we're no longer going to be subject to this body of sin. But he says the Spirit is alive in us, and it's life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead, the same power, the same Spirit that raised up Christ, if that dwells in you, then you also he, uh, shall... Let me go back. If the Spirit of Him that raised up Christ from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Do you see why it's so important for us to know about Christ and know what He's done and to live in Christ and to understand that He came in the flesh and was raised in the flesh? Because if He was raised in the flesh and he is, and was, and, and he's waiting at the right hand of the Father, sit, sitting there at the throne of heaven, waiting to return. And what is he going to do when he returns? He's going to raise our physical bodies. The body that you're in right now is going to be raised up. It's a, it's a uh, misunderstanding that, is, that continually is perpetuated at every funeral. We look at the casket and we go, that's not really them. Yes, it is. That's their mortal body. That's really them. It's a part of them. Now their spirit, uh, of course, our soul goes to Hades and is waiting there, but God is going to reunite these two pieces, our body and our soul, and, and combined with His spirit that dwells in us, that's the recipe for eternal life, is, is when, when we have our body, our soul, and the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, God is going to bring all these things together and we'll be transformed and receive a new body. But our mortal body really is us. We're not going to die and be separated from our body and then we go to heaven and then we'll never have our body again. That's not how it works. And besides that, we go to Hades when we die. We don't go to heaven when we die. Um, because we're waiting for our body and soul to be reunited and then we'll be raised up to heaven, just like Christ was. We'll go through the exact same process that Christ went through. We're not going to uh, get a, a fast pass and you know, cut the line and go straight to heaven. Uh, he says, therefore, brethren, if this is the case, 
if the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, if you are a member of the body of Christ and you are alive again with Christ, if that's the case, then you are debtors. You, you, we are in a debt now. The debt of sin has been paid, but now we owe, we owe it to Christ because He died for us and He was raised for us and defeated the works of Satan for us and gives us eternal life and reanimates us and makes us stop serving the dead works and now He causes us to serve the living God through, through our freedom of choosing Him and wanting to follow Him. He says we owe Him now. We should not live in the flesh after our fleshly desires and living after these the, the things that we want and, and these affections of the world, instead, we are debtors to live uh, to the Spirit that has, is saving us and will cause us to live. For if you live after the flesh, you are going to die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify, kill the deeds of your body, you will live. Uh, so we need to know that if we are really Christians, if we've been raised together with Christ in baptism, then we need to live like it. Don't let the flesh dictate how you live your life. Because if you do, you will die. If not, if you, through the Spirit, live and walk in the Spirit, meaning you're hearing and you're obeying the Scriptures, then you're going to have eternal life if you live faithfully to that. Okay? So, don't let yourself be guided by fleshly desires. Um, instead, have Christ as your life. Be focused on spiritual things so that you'll be part of Christ's glory when He returns and you'll appear with Him in glory, as the Scripture says. The resurrection, the fact that Jesus came into this world and was raised is the most important thing in our lives, and we don't want to miss out on that. And, and this is who Jesus is. This is what he's done. That's the first fundamental question that we need to answer as Christians. Do you even believe this? Because if you don't, that's a problem. Um, especially if, you, especially if, if you're a man that will someday be a leader of the congregation. It's a problem if you don't know this and you don't believe this. So, think about that. Second question. Do you believe His Word? These kind of go hand in hand. But the second question is, do you even believe in the Bible? Do you even believe the Scriptures? Again, that might seem very, very basic to you. But unfortunately, there are a lot of people that say, I am a Christian. There are a lot of people that say, I believe in Christ. But their lives, when you examine it and you look at it, they are not in alignment with the Scriptures at all. They are not living in alignment with God's will at all. And so that makes me raise a question, like, do you even, is that true? Do you believe in Christ? If you believe in Christ, then you'll do what He says. I mean, He says, why do you call me Lord and do not the things that I say? They go hand in hand. And so if we believe Christ, we need to believe in His Word. But that's the question you should ask yourself. Do you believe in His Word? We need to understand that the Word is given by God. Paul wrote this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So all the, the Scriptures that we have access to uh, that has been canonized and, and what we hold and what we read and what we study, all of these words were given by the inspiration of God. God has given us these details and this information so that we could live. The Holy Scriptures that we possess are God-breathed, and it is the most reliable source of spiritual information that will ever exist because it comes straight from a pure and a holy and a just source that is coming from God. These are not fables. 
The stories we read about in the Bible are not some made-up stories. They're not just some cute things that we might read to our kids and, you know, things get watered down. And, and of course, the, this intense story of, of death and, and suffering and labor and work and uh, of redemption and destruction that happens in the story of Noah gets watered down to, well, this guy had all these animals in the boat and they're all happy and it's cute. It's not that cute of a story. It's terrifying. But people reduce these down and boil these down and water it down so much that it loses its significance and its meaning and then it gets perpetuated and then that's all that people know and then they have no knowledge and so people live that way and they repeat these things and then the world looks at you going, these are goofy stories. Why would we believe that? And so then people think that the Bible believe, uh, that, that we believe in fables and some made-up kid stories. Um, but when we read the Bible, and what we read in the Bible is not merely human speculation. It's not, as, as Peter said in, in, in his writings, he said that the Bible and the Scriptures are not given by any private interpretation. This isn't something that some man made up or some group of men got together and made up. They're not just stories to control people. I used to believe that at one time, before I was a Christian. All oh, these are just stories so that people could have uh, power over others' lives and make you submit to, to them. And that is true for some religions, um, you know, particularly the religion that I came from. They use these types of things to keep people in control. Um, and they have been abused, yes. But the Bible itself, when we read that, they're not just made-up stories to scare us into acting nicer or as some group of men got together and wrote it to have power. In fact, Peter says this in 2 Peter 1.16, We have not followed cunningly devised fables. Do you know what that means? We haven't followed some articulately created, very meticulously crafted story and some made-up thing, and all these details just happen to line up. We haven't followed this... this uh, it's not Harry Potter, folks. That's not what we believe in. That's not what we are, we, how we live. That's a cunningly devised fable. It's a great story, and, and you know, the, it's, it's uh, amazing that a person could come up with all these things and all these characters and all these people and all these storylines and have such a seamless story uh, across eight books. But we're talking about a, the story of eternal life. We're talking about the story of eternal redemption. These are not cunningly devised fables that were collected and written across these 66 books across a span of, of centuries from these different authors. I mean, he says, and Peter sums it up this way, the, the, the eyewitness account, even if you just look at what he's saying with the New Testament, this is not just some simple made-up story about a guy named Jesus who came into the world and lived and died and made the sacrifice and brought eternal life to us, and now we live in according to his life, and if we do that, then we're going to also receive eternal life. It's not a made-up story. He says, it, this isn't a fable. When we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we are eyewitnesses of His majesty. The things we read in the New Testament are eyewitness accounts from men who were there. And men who, who not only were there, they, they exhibited the power of God, and that's what the Scripture says. They did miracles and all these signs to prove and to confirm that this was from God. And it was undeniable that they did these things. So we can be assured, uh, if, if knowing the first part, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God is not good enough, be assured that the fact that the New Testament writers are reliable eyewitnesses, they're reliable sources,
because they were there with Jesus Christ. They walked with him. They talked with him and asked him questions, hearing great wisdom from him. They saw him produce many miracles, many wonders, many great signs that Jesus performed right in their presence. Uh, Things like healing those who were totally crippled to even raising the dead back to life. They were there and they watched in horror as Jesus was being brutally beaten and murdered on the cross. They tearfully mourned as he was buried and sealed in the tomb. They wondered in amazement when three days later he was raised back to life. They were in disbelief. These men were there for every part of it. And they were so completely convinced about Jesus that they bled and died to share that message of the gospel. Nothing was going to stop them. Nothing was going to deter, to deter them from speaking the truth. As Peter says, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and we have heard. When those Jews came to them and said, stop teaching in Jesus' name, he says, if, it's, if, if, uh, if I should listen to you more than God, you judge. But we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and we have heard. That's what Peter told them. That's the boldness that they had after they were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ. But they died for it so that we, the rest of humanity could have access to, these, uh, to this information so that we could be saved. And the blessing for us is that these faithful men wrote the account so that we could have the same kind of real and active faith. John, in John 20, says this, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. The apostles left this information for you and me to be able to have eternal life. He writes again in 1 John 1, verse uh, 1-4. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled the word of life. Remember, John said the word was made flesh. He's talking about Jesus. They heard Him, they saw Him, they touched Him, they were there with Him. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show to you that, that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested to us. Again, repeating the same thing He said in First John, or in John chapter 1. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and made manifest into this world. And He says, we saw that with our very own eyes. That which we have seen and heard, that's what we're declaring to you. Why? so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. That's the reason we have the Scriptures. That's the reason we have the account that these men left for us in the New Testament. It's not just some cutesy, made-up story to try to make us be better people. No, this is our life. And this is to save us from sin. To save us from the power of, of the roaring lion who wants to destroy you, and wants to kill you, and wants you dead. He does not want you to have a relationship with the Father. He does not want you to obey the commandments of the Scriptures. Jesus does, and He came to destroy the works of the devil, and He came to give us this information so that we could be saved. It's like a light shining in darkness. Um, And to these disciples, this wasn't a game. This wasn't something that they casually lived out. They weren't, they weren't just Christians when it was convenient and when they wanted to be, and, oh, I can just kind of live my life, do what I want. This wasn't ca- casual Christianity. 
They didn't go on and, and, and these men like John and Peter and Paul and, and all of the disciples that were there with Jesus, they didn't go out and look for ways to manipulate and twist the Word of God and say, you know, I really like this kind of worship and this style of worship and I really want that. And they didn't take entertainment and swap it out and say, well, I know the Word says this, but I'm going to put entertainment there because that's what I like and that's what I want. That's what thrills me. That's not what they did. They lived their life in submission and they, they bowed down uh, to Christ rather than bowing down to their own desires. They didn't find ways to make it entertainment and make it fun and make it... This message was so engaging and so important and so life-changing to them and it was good enough. It was perfect. It doesn't need modifications. This message is not of, of entertaining yourself and glorifying and worshiping you. It's a message of self-denial and sacrifice in service to God and in service to our fellow men so that one day we will dwell together in the light of our, our holy God in eternity. That's what the apostles lived and died for. And it's a shame sometimes the way we treat the scriptures and just treat it as this casual thing and just kind of you know, cast it to the side and our needs and our, our wants and our desires take precedence. But this is our life source. Not only is it that, it's the guide and the authority of our life. In, in 2 Peter 1, verse 2, if it's not good enough to think about it coming from God and coming from eyewitness accounts and knowing that it's the life source uh, that, that, that fills us up, you need to understand that it, it has authority in your life. If you are a Christian, the Bible has authority over your life, and it should, and we ought to willingly submit ourselves to that and not, not be like... The scriptures, I don't care what that says, or I don't want to submit to that. No, anything the scripture says, we need to have a mindset of, okay, let's do it. Like, what do we need to do? Second Peter 1, 2-3 says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and, Jesus, uh, and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that called us to glory and virtue. Uh, the scriptures contain everything we need. Again, they're not made-up stories, but it's the guide for our life. And, it's, and if it's the guide, it means we don't get to decide what to, to replace and switch out and do all these things to make it ourselves comfortable. And, oh, okay, now I like the scriptures because I've done all these modifications. If it's the guide, it means we don't get to decide what's right and wrong. Again, it's not of any private interpretation. The word is what it is. And our response to it should be, okay, let, I'm, I'm here to, to hear it, and I'm open to understanding what it says so that I can comply with what it says and give my allegiance to Christ. Um, and, and it's stunning how often we look to a man uh, or some other religious source because it is painted with this veneer of Christianity we just tune our hearts and our minds to that and we say, wow, we're so filled up by some person that's coming with fair speeches and uh, with fair words and they come and make merchandise of all these people. Yet, we have access to the words of life, everything that pertains to life and godliness, and we look at that and go, eh, it's not as good as this guy on TV or on the radio. It's not as good as this YouTube channel. It's not as good as this podcast that I, I enjoy. So we need to know that carefully. Where is our allegiance and how are we valuing the scriptures? Really take a thorough examination of yourself to understand, are you placing the right value on the scriptures and are you treating it as the authority in your life and the guide of your life and loving the story that we have access to 
and not just casting it aside. If we do that, uh, if we're honest about it, we'll be able to grow. And, and if, if we're not treating the Scriptures as our life source and we're not going to it and studying it and learning about it and asking each other questions about the Scriptures and helping each other grow in the Scriptures, then we are going to, to fall into anything that comes along. Any television evangelist, any podcast, any YouTube channel that says they're scriptural, we're just going to be going wherever the wind blows us. And that's what P, uh, Paul said in Ephesians 4. He actually, if you read uh, prior to this, even in, in uh, chapter 1, he says, these things I'm writing to you so that you can understand. And he says that the reason he gives us the scriptures, the reason that, that God has revealed the truth to us through the Holy Spirit and through these men is so that we would no longer be children. He wants us to mature. It's childish for us to not know what the Bible says and be kind of going, oh, that sounds like a good Christian idea. That sounds like a good Christian idea. And I'm not really checking or verifying or really understanding. I'm just going along with whatever sounds good and whatever feels good. That's, that's like a child. Just letting our impulses lead us like a child. Whatever feels good. He says, we need and have the scriptures so that we will no longer be children, but will mature. Uh, because if we're like children, we'll be tossed to and fro and carried about with everyone. We'll believe anything that anybody comes along and tells us. I mean, you know how children are. You can, you can deceive a child very easily and, because they're just so, wow. And they, what? And they'll believe you and they, they're all excited about it. They don't know. That's not how we ought to live as Christians. Not tossed to and fro, not carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, wherein they lie in wait to deceive. Let's have our eyes open. Let's have our feet grounded. Let's have our minds matured. Let's be adults and like adults and not live like children, but instead walk firmly. And the way we do that is by hearing and obeying the Scriptures. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said this, Whosoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will compare him to a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat on that house. And what happened? It did not fall. Why? Because it was founded on a rock. Well, how was that foundation built? Because you heard and you did the things that Christ said. You relied on His Word, and you fashioned and, and you reshaped your life according to the things that He's taught. Not like a child who's tossed to and fro with every doctrine that comes along that says they're a Christian, but instead looking to the Scriptures and verifying and building your life upon that foundation and obeying the things that are found in the Scriptures. Because when the trials come, like rain and the floods and the winds, and those are, those are a metaphor for all of the trouble and the persecution and the struggles that we're going to experience in this life because there's going to be a lot. And a lot of you already know what I'm talking about because you've been through plenty of winds You've been through plenty of floods. You've been through plenty of rain in your life. And, if, and sometimes it may feel like you're falling apart, but God willing, you're not falling because your life is founded on a rock. If we don't love the Scriptures and believe in the Scriptures that Jesus had, if we don't believe in His words, then we are going to be like this foolish man. He says, Everyone that, does not, that, that hears the sayings of mine and does not do them will be compared to a foolish man. Why was he so foolish? Because he only heard it, and he never did the, the commandments of, of Jesus. And in doing that, he built his house, his life was built on sand. 
The rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell because it did not have a solid foundation and great was the fall of it. If we don't hear and do the word of God, those two things, then our life is going to be built upon sand and at the sign of any trouble that comes along, any temptation that comes along, any persecution that comes, any struggle that comes along in your life, you're going to fall apart. And it won't be God's fault. God's fault. It'll be our own. If we didn't hear and do the scriptures, if we didn't mature and grow in, in this firm foundation, we need to understand as well that not only is it, is it the guide and the authority of our life and it should be the foundation, this, is, this word that we live by, that we study, that we care about, that we preach so much, this is what's going to judge you in the, in the final judgment. John 12, 48. Jesus said, He that rejects me and does not receive my words, and that's not just an outright, like, oh, I don't want to hear that. But it's like, okay, yeah, that's what the Bible says, and then I'm just going to go do what I want, and I'm going to forget. That's also not receiving his words. He that rejects me and does not receive my words has one that judges him. The word that I've spoken, the same will judge him in the last day. If we don't think it's very serious, we need to understand that it is very serious. Because the word of Christ, the words that we read of in the New Testament and in the scriptures, that is what's going to judge our life. That's the standard by which we are going to be compared and judged. And Jesus will look at our life and say, was your life in alignment with my will or not? And ultimately, the choice is yours. Our feelings and desires will not be the standard that we are judged by, because that's not what we should live by. But if we love Jesus, we must have a serious attitude and submit ourselves faithfully to His Word, because that's the standard that's going to judge us. That's going to determine whether we have eternal life or not, if we heard and did the things that Christ commanded us to do. So what is your answer to these two questions? There are two fundamental questions that every Christian was, must answer, and especially any man who, who thinks that they will be a leader someday in the congregation, an elder or a deacon. Do you believe in Christ? That He is God, that He died for our sins, that He joins us to Himself in baptism, that, that He calls us to live a life in view of the resurrection, where our mortal bodies will be raised up. Because if you don't believe in Jesus, then you can't be a Christian. You can't. And if, if you're not a Christian, then you can't be an example to other people. You won't be an example to the congregation of how to live faithfully in Christ. You won't be an example to other people of how to be saved in the first place. And if you don't believe in Jesus, you're not going to believe in His Word. What's the point? Do you believe that... Uh, so let's say you do. Let's say your answer is yes, you believe in Christ. Well, do you believe in His Word? What does your life say? Do you believe that the Word is from God, that it is a reliable testimony from eyewitnesses, that it is the authority in our lives, that we should submit ourselves to it, because ultimately that's going to be our judge? If you answer no to either one of these questions, we could really just go ahead and stop now. Just, we don't even need to continue with this, this series, because it just doesn't even matter if you don't believe either one of these questions. Because it's impossible to be a leader of any type among God's people if the answer is no to either question. 
Now, the answer is yes, on the other hand, and, and I, I think it is, I think it's yes, then we are going to be compelled to act. We are going to be compelled to live in a certain way and act in a certain way. James chapter 2, 17. The Bible says, Even so faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, if a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works, show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. If you believe this, if you, if you honestly believe in Jesus and you honestly believe in His Word, then show it. Live like it. Show that by your works. Prove that out in the fruit that you're producing in your life. Because if we believe that Jesus, uh, if we believe in Him and His Word, then that's going to be evident because it's going to be co- accompanied by certain actions. And the certain action is, namely, you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so in the next study, we'll look at that. We'll talk about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and why it's important for you as an individual to be a disciple of Christ. But for this, this morning, these are the two fundamental questions. They are the grounding force, not only for our lives. Um, it's not just for us, ourselves, but the lives of our, our wife, our children, the, the brothers and sisters. Every person in this congregation needs to answer this, these two questions for yourself. But this is going to serve as the basis for the rest of our, our, our studies, of course, but this is the kind of thing that will determine how we live in this world and how we behave in this world and, and the things that we are going to do and the things we're not going to do. This is the kind of faith we should have and that we should be living in. And so as you examine this, these questions, as you examine yourselves, are you lacking in, the, in faith in His Word? Are you lacking in faith in Christ? If you're here this morning and, and you feel a sense of conviction uh, because you feel lacking as you compare yourself to the, to the Scriptures, um, we want to offer an invitation to you as, as your family in Christ. It's not uh, for judgment, but it's for support. And we want to support you. If you feel weak, if you feel like you need prayers, it's not a shame to come forward and ask for help. Um, and, it's, and if you're here this morning and haven't been baptized into Christ and you want that gift as we studied about, and you want to be joined together with Christ, and you want to live eternally, there's only one way to do that, and we're here to help you with that as well. Um, and even if, you, even if you don't want to come forward right now during this invitation song, um, I mean, it is an opportunity we offer, but even if you don't want to right now, you can talk to us after services. There's plenty of, of men that you can talk to, plenty of women you can talk to who will be a support and be a help to you. So we're here If there's anyone that has a need, please come forward as we stand and sing. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.